Hello, everyone, and welcome to Novel. This is your host, Caleb Linville. Today, I am excited to present episode eight of When the Mountains Called. But first, a few quick messages. Novel is always looking for new, exciting, and thought-provoking stories to present on our podcast. If you have a story or a story idea that you would like to share with us for consideration for future seasons, please contact Novel at clinville at novelpodcast.net. That's C-L-I-N-V-I-L-L-E at novelpodcast.net or you can visit our website novelpodcast.net for more information this house was large three stories with vaulted ceilings and floor-to-ceiling windows in the great room where a stone fireplace towered a sturdy backbone holding everything together the walls the color of slow-churned buttercream were almost obscured by portraits painted and photographed of several different people old, black-and-white portraits with children playing together on a seesaw, their knee-high socks crisp and clean, old-time photographs with stern-looking woman with a tight, high bun in her hair, hands primly folded across her lap in front of her softer, rounder husband, newer paintings of rosy-cheeked girls in blonde pigtails holding bright red lollipops and smiling at the artist. The people in these portraits were all different, young men with suspenders, old women with sweeping skirts, children with high-waisted shorts and soccer cleats. But each face, if you looked closely, was characterized by the same small button nose, where the nostrils turned up slightly higher than most. This house belonged to the Boulder family, passed down for generations. Over time, its walls stayed the same creamy white, but each generation, each year, new photos and paintings were added, or the cupboards were updated or the couch was upholstered to hide the weathered red velvet that Samson Boulder Sr. had refused to change during the entirety of his 67 years on Earth. These changes had brought a flare of revolution and just a little bit of awe, but not so much that the house's foundation was betrayed. Honor, diligence, and most of all, family loyalty characterized the grand staircase that swept up from the foyer and moved through the robust copper piping from basement to the third floor where all the children's rooms were all the way out to the stables where at least two horses lived at all times. From the moment Samson Boulder Sr. built this house until the fire demolished the whole thing after the birth of the sixth generation. Before the fire, the house had only one scare of falling from the Boulder family possession. When the youngest son, Edmund Jr., fell in love with Miss Delilah Bucourt, daughter of his father's steel business competitor, the house thought for a moment that it would become collateral as part of Mr. Bucourt's reluctant agreement to marry his daughter to an ostensibly lower than his class man. It would have been the opposite of a dowry, the exchange of the Boulder House for the Bucourt daughter, but Edmund Sr. would have done it for his son because it would have fulfilled the first Boulder family pillar, family loyalty. Luckily, however, Miss Delilah ran away with Edmund before her father could have demanded anything of the sort and so the house remained intact and Boulder held. Everyone knew the Bucourt daughter had run to the Boulder house to marry Edmund Jr., but Mr. Bucourt kept it quiet as he could, which is to say out of the newspapers, by not making a fuss about the Boulder house deed, as everyone thought he might. It was all very strategic, because the Boulder house remained a stalwart, uncontested symbol of the town, and everyone agreed to forget about Miss Delilah's betrayal. Soon, she was a Boulder, her portrait added to the house walls, and she too became something of a legend. Indeed, 
The house remained strong and intact over the generations before the fire, even if it did succumb to the general wear and tear that every house experiences, especially when Miss Delilah had her triplet sons, Edmund III, Curtis, and Casper. The three boys had elfish ears and the same famous boulder nose, and their eyes twinkled in unison. They were boisterous boys, but the town loved them because their antics were, in the long run, harmless. But when they created a jungle gym out of the house's 17th century French chandeliers on the second story, Miss Delilah had no choice but to ship them off to military school, and they came back with sturdy jackets and pressed pants, albeit with the same devilish twinkle in their eyes. Still, no one expected the fire, right at the turn of the sixth to the seventh generation. Edmund III's wife, a young French girl he had met while stationed abroad after military school, died while giving birth to their only son, Samson, and Edmund III refused to remarry. Some said it was the lack of female presence that started the fire. The house was unbalanced, while others said it was the inauspicious naming of the child to be the same as that of the original builder of the house, since it created a full circle, a sort of an end to a beginning. But whether it was Edmund III's stubbornness that killed the house or the fateful naming of his son, the house burned before young Samson could marry and swing in the eighth generation. The cream-colored walls, still vibrant despite their age, curled in the smoke. Copper piping melted, the stable went up in flames. The only thing left standing from the multi-generational house was the stone fireplace. As the smoke subsided, the Boulder boys were coming home from an afternoon horseback ride. Lucky, Sam's pony, and Charlie, Edmund III's mare, stood still in the ashes, their ears flicking nervously. Sam wanted to cry as the final boards fell, but he could only stare, stunned at his father's expressionless face. The wind was quiet, and the crackling of the embers around the burned chandeliers was the only thing to be heard in the otherwise deafening silence. Sam figured his father would fall to his knees, or command Sam do something with the horses before whipping into action himself. But all Edmund III did, as he and his only son stood in the ashes, was make a small noise in his throat before opening his mouth. Well, that's that. Sam was too young to hear all of the stories the house had held for the Boulder family over the last few hundred years, but he was not so young that he could not sense the gravity of the situation, and realize his own maroon state, the only Boulder male in seven generations to not assume the sacred family sanctuary. For his own part, Edmund III kept it together but the twinkle in his eye was less pronounced for the remainder of his life, which was only five more years after the literal family pillars fell. Young Sam was 13 years old when his father died. He lived with his father's friend until he was 18, finished school, and himself went to the military. The officers recognized the older family twinkle, but there was no house to speak of, no family loyalty to speak of, because Sam was all that was left. He did what he could to keep the other pillars close to his heart, always putting honor and diligence first, first in the military, and then as a self-started carpenter. He married for love, which he felt loyal to his grandpa's own marriage, and that was that. Gone was the Boulder House, the symbol of the Boulder legacy. But, again, Sam kept the house close to his heart, and passed its pillars on to his children. And he died, after 87 years, in the small cabin he and his wife had built together decades before only a minuscule remembrance of the magnificent house that had raised the Boulder family for 300 years.
The fire was small as the elder finished his story. He wrapped his russet brown shawl tighter around him and raised his gaze to Andrew, who sat cross-legged next to Mac by the flickering coals, which did not burn him. Andrew's mind shimmered with the image of the house from the story. Tall cream walls and thousands of portraits of loved ones and moments aligned with precision against them. He thought of the way the house had fallen, several generations of youth crumbling within hours. A tear fell from his eye, and he wiped it away hurriedly. It wasn't so much the story as the way the elder had told it. His voice, low and musical, captivating, blocking out every other thought Andrew might have had before. So this is why the wildering people were storytellers. As Andrew stared into the crackling fire, he saw dancing images, three triplets swinging from chandeliers, a young woman fleeing from her own mansion, crossing the stream to a multi-generational home, a hammer swinging down on a nail to raise the first wall of that same house. Thank you, Sam, whispered Mac, his own eyes shining as he looked at the storyteller with the long gray beard. You're Sam? Sam from the story? asked Andrew, his mouth gaping. The russet-shawled elder bowed his head in assent. But I don't... I don't understand, said Andrew, almost to himself. Didn't that... Did that scar you? The elder smiled. A freak fire burning down a generational home before I could have it for my own continuing long-standing tradition? Of course. In some ways. He chuckled, and the fire spurted upwards. But Decito, he said, and his voice continued to wrap Andrew in warmth greater than that of the flames he sat by. What did the story do for you? For me? Andrew's brain whirled, scrambling to come up with something. An elder near him, a man with short salt-and-pepper hair and a green shawl, touched his shoulder, and the whirling in Andrew's mind stopped. He felt calm. I suppose, he said and coughed, aware that all minds were on him. The children still played in the background, but their voices were muted. I suppose... Andrew thought back to the story, and emotions surged in his heart again. Sorrow for the loss of the house, and then a static, dull pain, followed by deep nostalgia. Then, after those, his heart felt still again. A peace punctured only sporadically by softened throbs, and yet even these seemed eons apart. I feel like I understand, he whispers then, and his heart thudded, because he realized the truth of his words. He did understand. He understood all of it, except the last part. The peace. That strange, wonderful, but strange feeling. Foreign, after so many years. I believe you, said Sam, looking straight into Andrew's eyes. There was no pity in them. Not like Suzanne's the first year after Pearl's death. Not like the sweeping gazes of the townspeople before Andrew stopped going into the community and instead retired completely from the public eye. Instead, Sam's stare was only that of empathy. The loss of his house surged with other losses. The loss of his family legacy. The loss of his father. And to some extent, the loss of himself. Andrew's mind flashed back to the forgetting man. The one who had vanished into the whipping storm only the day before. And Mac's words. To forget oneself, Tocito, is worth a thousand deaths. Andrew looked around him. The four elders that sat in the circle were all looking at him with a soft smile. But again, it wasn't pity. Andrew's eyes drifted upwards, and above their heads, framed in the firelight, were soft orbs, 
shimmering as the smoke moved behind them. In each orb was a scene. In one elder's, a young baby sleeping in a crib. In another's, a professor's desk laden with paper and books. In another elder's orb, one who Andrew noticed then was in a wheelchair, there only seemed to be himself, with two perfectly functioning legs. In Sam's orb, the boulder home. Andrew looked next to him. Mac had an orb too, and inside was an image Andrew had seen earlier. Two hands gripping its steering wheel as young Julia bounced in the passenger seat, pigtails swinging and voice singing. Above him, Andrew's own orb sparkled. There, relaxing in her hammock, trekking poles resting against the tree, sat Pearl, blue eyes shining as she wiped her forehead and sighed, the long day's adventure reflecting in the sweat that beaded her brow. Andrew's lip quivered, and he grit his teeth. But looking around at the wildering people, and at Mac, Andrew had never felt so understood, or so unashamed for the image that coursed through his mind and in the orb above his head. These men knew what he had gone through, for they all had lost something too. A loved one, their ability to move, their career. But the orbs that held these images were not dull, or filled with sorrow as Andrew expected them to be. Tinged, maybe, but not filled. For everything else, the images in the orbs were vibrant, full of life. Words resurrect the dead, said Sam, the house above his head shimmering still, and stories give them a place to stay. The fire crackled, and Andrew looked up once more at the image in his own orb. Pearl was smiling, her face tilted up to the sun that streamed through the tree branches above her hammock. Andrew's heart tugged, a sharp pain at first, but before he could push the image away, Sam's hand was on his shoulder. Wait, he said, his eyes serene. Just wait. Look past the pain. Andrew's eyes remained on Pearl, on her soft, blonde-gray hair, on the laugh lines at the corners of her eyes. He could see her teeth behind her smile. The front tooth had a small chip in it, the only imperfection behind her soft, thin lips. He chuckled to himself, and out of the corner of his eye, the wildering people's fire leapt again, flames burning a bright orange. Pearl always smiled with her teeth showing, even if she was alone with her own thoughts, which had always made Andrew grin when he looked up from weeding, mowing the lawn, and saw her, sitting on the porch with a book, or reclining in the hammock as she was now, eyes closed, resting. Anybody else would have thought she was insane, or having a really good dream, but Andrew knew that that was just Pearl. Always joyful, no matter what the world thought. And if he ever snuck up on her during one of these moments, Andrew would reach down and tap her chipped tooth, startling her and making her laugh. A loud, honking laugh until she collapsed into wheezes. Pearl Goose, he'd call her then, and she would shove him, and in fake anger, reprimand him for disturbing the pace. That's beautiful, said Sam and Andrew's gaze jerked back down from the orb. He hadn't realized he'd spoken out loud. Do you talk about Pearl often? Another elder, one with a wine-colored shawl, asked. His voice was deep, reverberating in Andrew's ribcage. Andrew shook his head. Not in 25 years, piped in Mac. Andrew made a noise, but Mac was right. He couldn't remember the last time he'd said her name out loud to anyone else. He couldn't remember the last time he had mentioned her things. 
or looked through that packed closet in the entryway, or done anything other than try to exist without her. Sam and the others nodded thoughtfully. Thank you, Tacito, said Sam, his eyes brighter than the flames next to him, for sharing a story with us. It was hardly a story, said Andrew, before he could stop himself. Just a teeny memory. He looked down at his hands, suddenly embarrassed to be in the presence of these men, with their multicolored shawls, gentle voices, and weighted words. He felt insignificant. Pearl was his wife, but these men didn't know her. What was the point of sharing her now? Perhaps, said Sam, head bent, ruffling through a pocket in his shawl. In your vault of Pearl stories, it was only a small one. But, his fingers clasped, and he withdrew his hand from his pocket. Between his thumb and index finger was a piece of paper with writing on it. He raised his hand, and the firelight illuminated the black, scrawled ink. Andrew couldn't make out the words, but before he could ask, Sam tossed the scrap of paper into the flames. There was a pop, and the fire burned an icy blue. As the flames licked the starry sky, a new sound was carried on the smoke and danced under the tree branches overhead. The sound of a flock of geese honking, dissolving into a woman's gasping laughter. Andrew's heart lurched. He hadn't heard that sound in over twenty-five years. Pearl, he whispered, whipping his head around. But instead of seeing his wife, there were only the village children and clusters of wildering adults. They had all stopped, too, looking up towards the sound. The children playing the game like hacky sack let the ball drop mid-toss, craning their neck to the stars. One of them, a small boy with bright red hair, closed his eyes and smiled wide, revealing gap teeth. A small sound escaped him, a hiccup of a laugh. Soon the other children followed suit, their gaze still skyward, mouths laughing in unison with the sound of the geese above them. As the laughter faded, the fire returned to orange, and the children picked up their ball, jostling each other with renewed energy. The little red-haired boy turned and looked at Andrew, and he smiled. What was that? asked Andrew, looking at Mac, who only sat, hands folded in his lap, nodding, as if he himself had just shared in some profound secret. Sam answered him, bending forward so that his long gray hair brushed his knees. Stories can be beautiful things, Tacito, when we choose to share them. They're universal. Many of the messages behind them are not to be guarded with lock and key, for they are us. They are life, the good, the bad, the joy, the pain, and we keep them together. You've added to our collection, to our understanding of the world. You've allowed us to consider a moment of joy and laughter and peace. To slow down and remember our stories and those same moments within them, and to process them differently, because you were willing to process your own. Andrew didn't know what to say, but he looked over Sam's shoulder at the little red-headed boy, who was now leaping at the other children, laughing maniacally as he tried to grab the hacky sack ball. Nearby, adults who noticed began to chuckle, their old eyes assuming a younger, more vibrant light as they shared in his joy. Pearl was joy he said softly, and Sam shook his head. Pearl is joy, he said, and we are honored that you shared her with us. Mac put a hand around Andrew's shoulder. They were shaking. Soft sobs welled in Andrew's throat, but they weren't like before on the top of the forgetting mountain. These were fuller. 
not so raw and desperate, but imbued with something else. This was joy, perhaps. The same joy that radiated through the fire and in the smoke above the village people's heads and in the small children's game behind them. Tosito, whispered Mac. It's time to go. Andrew nodded, but he didn't move. He wasn't sure he wanted to. He wasn't sure he wanted to leave this place or this feeling. Don't worry, said Sam, sitting back up and folding his hands in his lap. You're always welcome back here. Macario knows the way. He nodded at Mac, whose eyes blazed in the light of the fire, so much so that once again, Andrew had to look away. And Tosito, continued Sam, as the other elders turned back to the fire in their conversation. If we don't see you again, remember this. You are a storyteller too. Your words matter. Look at how they matter when you choose to share them. He gestured to the community around him, to the children and adults and the elders who were laughing and giggling together more than ever, to the fire that spit and crackled even brighter than before. A small smile formed on Andrew's lips and his eyes brimmed again. That wasn't me. That was all Pearl. Perhaps, said Sam over his shoulder as he turned back towards the fire and the other elders, but you brought her here. Thank you for listening to Novel. I hope you enjoyed this segment of our story. Please consider liking, subscribing, and reviewing the show to help the show grow, and also so that you don't miss out on the newest episodes. Thanks. This episode was read by Jonathan Keener. Written by Shannon Baker. With hosting, production, and original music by Caleb Linville.